Texas has one of the biggest and most accountable programs in the country for medical, despite where people may want to make some tweaks. It works and it works really well, and it will continue to grow. Uh, the data shows that both for conditions, patient inclusion and doctor inclusion. And so the, what should this look like this year, next year, two years to the legislature? That's probably the most immediate question. The next question is, do we need more dispensaries, DOs or doctors? And that's a policymaker decision that they're going to have to decide based on the input they receive. And so if you care, you should share it. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, my name is Shada Tarabi, and you are listening to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm super excited for today's conversation. I am joined by Pat Davis. Pat has a company called Weeds. They are based in New Mexico, but he is entering into the Texas market, which I've been very curious to learn a little bit more about. I know my listeners will be really eager to listen to this episode too. So please introduce yourself and share what Weeds is up to and how you're ending up in the Texas market. Thanks, Shada. Yeah, it's... It- as my mom says, this is not what I thought you'd be doing when you grew up. Yeah, I, Weeds is a cannabis consulting firm, but we mostly focus on public policy and startup and licensing and compliance. We don't operate firms. We don't operate those. But in New Mexico, we got our start when New Mexico got ready to go wreck. The governor there, Governor Lujan Grisham, uh, appointed me to be the chair for Legalization Commission to really take a look at New Mexico's uh, really robust medical program and, and help build a roadmap to get us to a medical adult use hybrid. And so we spent a couple of years going around the country, looking at other states, building a roadmap for how states and cities could transition uh, to build a brand new industry, essentially. And when New Mexico finally copied that and legalized adult use to add to our medical program, we launched our firm to help governments and public policy folks figure out how to navigate those and also how to help operators who wanted to get into the business, like figure out how to start and how to get a business started in an industry that is incredibly complicated and hasn't figured all the rules out yet. So we do a lot of that work in New Mexico. We've done a little work in Nevada. We've, we're now just recently won the award from the Texas DPS to be their subject matter expert to help them evaluate the next steps for this, the TUP program. And so I think we're excited to talk about that this morning. Yeah, absolutely. I am very eager to talk about it. Obviously, in our little brief introduction before we hit record, and my listeners know this, I am very much on the hemp side as far as a operator, a license holder. I've been asked, would you ever want to get into selling big C cannabis or marijuana? And I'm a born and raised Texan. I've been tracking what Texas's cannabis and marijuana program has been looking like. And Obviously, it's very exciting that Texas has invested in expanding the Texas Compassionate Use Program. But at the same time, it's been a little bit of a slow starter. You're seeing some of the challenges that the market is obviously navigating through. And so I think the most recent news to condense it and and tee it up for our conversation today, Texas opened up a call for more licensing a couple of months ago. There was a lot of excitement. People were eager to obviously enter in the Texas market with a medical marijuana license. There are currently three license holders in the Texas medical marijuana uh, program. And for my understanding, two of those license holders were operational. The third one was not super operational until recently they got back in the game. I think there was 
they owned the license, but they didn't really use the license and now they're operating again. So you've got three license holders. I think last I checked, the program was, and I'm sure you have better numbers, 50,000 patients. And it's not necessarily something that I think we have a lot of insight into. Is that all time? Are some of those people active? Are they not active? Things like that. And so when the state was like, hey, we're going to open up yeah. licensing, obviously everybody was super excited. Everybody, in fact, I maybe mentioned it on the podcast, but I'll reintroduce it here. I got invited to a Woody Harrelson rally campaign. This was right before the legislative session was going to end a couple of months ago here in Texas, which we were hoping was going to have some things, obviously, for him, some things certainly for the T-Cut program, and no bills were passed this legislative session. So going to that event, you saw there were a lot of people from outside of Texas who were eager to get into this market. And then when we saw that no bills were passed and the compassionate use program didn't really make any advancements in terms of legislation, I think a lot of people are looking and wondering, is the state actually going to award any more licenses and what's really happening with that program? And I had seen some memo with y'all's name on it. And so that's what really piqued my interest. I was like, what is Texas doing? Texas is making some movements. Who are these people? What is weeds? What's going on in New Mexico? And so that's what led me down the rabbit trail to you, Pat. And I know I said a lot, but whatever comes to mind is where I'll let you jump in and close up some of those details. I think you're asking exactly the right questions and to be blunt and talk about our project here. That's exactly what the Compassionate Use Program folks at DPS ask us to do. When they opened the applications for new uh, DOs, new dispensing organizations, as you mentioned, it was in parallel and in anticipation of legislation passing that would have required expansion, both right. in the number of qualifying conditions and basically saying, hey, we, we know we need more licenses statewide. Like, I'll leave the politics to other folks, but it was pretty clear that most of the legislature was in support of that at this point, and, and they have been, right? You got to remember that in, in Texas, in the CUP program and the compassionate use program, they've expanded it twice now in 2019 and 2021. Uh, just couldn't get it over the finish line this time to do more expansion. But what you see when you look at that data is that every time the legislature here expanded the number of conditions, the number of patients increased exponentially. And I think from folks that look at outside of Texas and think about all the politics here and where they think Texas is, in fact, the legislature has been pretty open to expanding conditions where data makes sense. And so they did open up applications and said, hey, we want to know who's interested in this. How could you help us solve? And remember that the big ticket for the, the legislation for the Compassionate Use Program, the big number there, the big statement here is statewide access. And so the question that DPS now has and their challenge is, do the existing three dispensing organizations, as you mentioned, two have been really robust. One came back into business late last year and has been more robust this year. Those three organizations are they able to serve statewide access? And if, if so, like, how do we show that? If not, do we need more dispensing organizations or maybe we let them open additional locations? But in that question, how many patients are in the program, as you mentioned, that are real active, right? We have more than 60,000 registered patients in Texas, but not all of them get a prescription every 30 days, 60 days, or every year. Some of them you know, are no longer participating, but are in the system because no one knows that they've moved. Some may have passed on other things. And so what we've really been challenged to do is to work with DPS to look at the data that they have, which is fantastic data, by the way, much better than most states that we've looked at. Okay. And really decide, like, what does the program look like today? We know what it looked like in 2018. There were less than 5,000 uh, prescriptions. There were three organizations. It was pretty easy to track everything. But now today, 
as you mentioned, there are more than 60,000 patients in the system. We think about 50,000 of those plus or minus are fairly active in the last two years when we get to the end of the data. But there are other factors. And we'll talk, we can talk about all of that, including access to doctors who can prescribe it and how many counties have access to doctors and how far you have to drive, um, how much product you have to purchase, right, on your prescription, especially if you have to drive three or four hours to Austin to get it uh, from El Paso or even further if you're coming from El Paso. Um, and is that really statewide access or not? That's what DPS is trying to figure out. They want to be sure they're meeting their mission from the legislature. It's their decision to make, but we're going to help them try to make sense of the data, or at least that's our challenge. It is really exciting, obviously, to see that Texas is making an investment in this by hiring you guys. I think that was a really big indication when I saw that they had hired a consulting group to actually weigh in for how the program could expand. It gave me hope that, to your point, Texas is open to this. They just want to see the data and roll out a program accordingly in maybe a slower pace than some other states or operators like myself maybe want to see. I think when I was a consumer before I got in the industry, the condensed version was, yeah, weed should be legal and the state or the government should just legalize it. It's a light switch. Just flip it on. But now being in the industry five years, having these conversations, it's a much more complex endeavor. Obviously, we're seeing it happen at the federal level with kind of the back and forth. And certainly here in Texas has been very much in my face because I think the size of our state. Yeah. I was just reading Vicente, which is a cannabis law firm. They did some article about the Texas market. In fact, they were the ones who threw the kind of campaign gala with Woody Harrelson to try to say, hey, OK, Texas, let's take it serious. Let's take it to the next step. And I think that just shows that there is a lot of interest outside looking in on the Texas marketplace for a myriad of reasons, our size, just the impact and the power that our state has. But they made some comment about Texas being the largest market currently due to the hemp derived. I'm sure part of that data, or at least the you know observation is also the illicit market. And so I think that underpinning the whole conversation of Texas is going to be a really big opportunity once we get things streamlined. And so obviously your company coming in, helping streamline that process from the medical side. Let me back up a little bit though. So I know in your bio that you sent over, you didn't necessarily mention it in your intro, but you're a former police officer, which I think is a really great point to bring up. So one, I always appreciate, thank you for your service. I think there's a lot of contention around law enforcement and cannabis, obviously, hey, you used to police against it and now you're on the side of supporting it. And obviously you're doing what your state or your jurisdiction was mandating at the time, things being you know legal or illegal. And that I'm curious about transitioning into cannabis, what that perspective has been like for you. But also, again, I think part of the podcast and what I like to unpack and uncover is you didn't have a traditional canvas background. You didn't have a traditional consulting in the industry. And part of that's because the industry is still freaking new, right? There's not people who go to school or have degrees to do some of these things that are being done. So how did you really build and become the authority for the state of New Mexico, which then is leading to Texas to say, yeah, Pat, you and Weeds are the team. You're the people. Let's listen to you. It remains to be seen if they listen to us, right? Uh, but we'll, we'll see. No, as you point out, yeah. I always wanted to be a, I always wanted to be a cop. I was a baby cop at US, the U.S. Capitol Police, actually, in Washington, D.C. was my first cop job before anybody knew what the Capitol Police was. Wow. Went there through 9-11 and, and then went to the D.C. Metro Police Department. And I was a young, skinny white guy and got picked up by a DEA task force to, to work on, work some undercover work and do some other things in the community there. 
And that really opened my eyes. I, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Georgia in a really rural part of the state. My dad was a farmer and a postal worker. We got up early and, and stayed out late, putting up hay every summer. And I hated those jobs and I wanted to go do something else. But I had never been in a place like the sort of the drug zone of an urban inner city. Uh, but I was fascinated by it. But really what it got me into interested in was we were just wasting a lot of time as far as I was concerned, arresting sort of those street level users. And, and this wasn't mostly cannabis. This was everything else under the sun. Um, but I, I, as it happened, I, there was an opportunity for me and my family to move to New Mexico. And we did. And I went to work for the university police department. They sent me to the FBI Academy in Quantico. I was on track to do some pretty cool things. And then I started, your, much like your story, I, I started having seizures in my 20s and a lot of my family had that experience. And so I wasn't able to be a cop anymore. But I went back to New Mexico from the FBI Academy. My doctor told me, hey, look, I think I can say this now because uh, I think she's probably uh, retired. But she said, hey, look, if you find an epilepsy strain in the New Mexico medical market, which was fairly new at the time, if you fail your drug test, they're going to fire you. If you have a seizure at work, they're going to fire you. At least see if you can get through the end of the year, finish your, your schooling and, and find another job. And so my doctor really turned me in onto it. And that was a hard thing for me to put together in my little brain, but it got me through. It allowed me to finish my graduate work at New Mexico State University, go Aggies. And, and it, I went to work for the district attorneys working on drug court programs and, and public education programs. Long story short, I ended up running for public office and I'm the uh, city councilor in the city of Albuquerque. But really, when this governor got elected, she was looking for, uh, and our governor's a Democrat, our state's a pretty Democratic state all, all in all, was looking for um, a Democratic ally who could speak cop and throw cannabis, and there aren't a lot of us. Um, and so I ended up chairing her legalization commission. But it was really important, to answer your question, uh, that we included the police officers, right? We included cops. And I think they had been excluded from the process. And that was one of our legislative challenges in the past. They had just said no. By the time we got to this, they knew that New Mexico was going to update the system. They had no, no problem with our medical program. There weren't really black market issues. There weren't problems with medical patients. And so what they told us was, we don't like it, but if you're going to make it do, make us do it, they had some ask and was additional money for training on DWI and those things. Uh, but they also just didn't want to be the tax police. They didn't want to try to figure out what weed was legal and what wasn't on the side of the road. It's as if you're going to do it, just do it and then have somebody responsible for it. And so we set up the cannabis control division in the state, which is a little like the, the compassionate use program here uh, with investigators and the whole nine yards that could do that law enforcement function. Um, but yeah, New Mexico is all in all, we have our challenges. A lot of Texans come to New Mexico to, to buy recreational either for the weekend or either just on vacation to Ruidoso or Taos. And they find a lot higher THC products on the shelves, maybe for recreational use and for medical use. But we know that Texans, for example, understand, some Texans understand the value of cannabis in their lives and are, are choosing to use it in the right way. And I think when we look at the data in Texas, the early data anyway, um, it looks a lot like New Mexico's early medical program. And that's what I think is really interesting is we can see how New Mexico over 10 years added conditions, added patients. And then we can take that data and say, hey, look, of the number of epilepsy patients in New Mexico, 5% of them chose to participate in the medical program. So Texas should look at the number of epilepsy patients in Texas and expect that by year five or six, 5% of those folks are going to be in the program. And so that gives us some data to start pointing the, the arrow towards where will this program grow and how can Texas build a program to support them uh, because we know the patients will continue to want access. That's one of the questions and that will lead the department and the state to be able to make some decisions about whether 
they should expand licenses, whether they should uh, expand, do education with doctors to be sure that patients are getting the right information. That's going to be the decision in Texas. And that's part of this process. And in fact, as you and I are recording today, we're going to go to the advisory board this afternoon to hear from patients and DOs and others uh, about their concerns and what they'd like to see so that we can point that data and answer those questions. Hey, To Be Blunt fam, it's Shada here, and I want to give a shout out to my own brand of premium cannabis products, Restart CBD. As a daily user myself, I can personally attest to the effectiveness of our cannabis tinctures, topicals, edibles, and specifically our hemp-derived Delta 9 THC offerings. Whether I'm dealing with stress, body aches, or just need a boost in focus, Restart has a product and cannabinoid that can make me feel better. And our customers have been loving Restart too. Here are some actual quotes from our fans. Juice said, customer service alone deserves a five star. Always super generous when we come here. Also very professional and knowledgeable. Why, thank you very much. We take those five stars and we raise you a high five. And then Laura said, this is the absolute best dispensary I've ever been to. It's run by three sisters who are all equally knowledgeable about every product they sell. Ah, Laura, thank you for seeing us. We really are out here acting like a sponge, just trying to soak up all the information. So if you're looking for quality cannabis products from CBD to Delta 8, and yes, even Delta 9, we got you. Head to restartcbd.com. By the way, we ship nationwide. All our products are federally legal and hemp derived. So use the code 2BTOBE at checkout to get $5 off your first order on me. Our team is dedicated to providing you with the best cannabis products on the market, and we're proud to be sponsors of To Be Blunt. Thanks for supporting my brand and my podcast, and let's all restart our day with Restart CBD. Remarkable story, remarkable journey of how you've gotten into the cannabis industry. And I find that, yeah, obviously a lot of people, it is personal, whether it's something they're navigating through or they've got a family member that kind of changes their perception around it. And so... I just think it's important to highlight those stories. So I really am grateful that you're joining me on the podcast for multiple reasons. One, just to reflect on your background, because I do think those are important conversations to your point of not excluding the cops, which I do think sometimes does get overlooked. And and it, again, it creates this division of those are the people who have been arresting us and making this a criminal event. And that's obviously changing. And I've certainly heard that just throughout different conversations, different states, people in New York saying the cops used to arrest us and now I can smoke a joint on the side of the street and the cop is walking right by and nobody's doing anything. And so I think you mentioned that as well. It's not that they want to go after those, but that's maybe part of what the law is in that state. And a lot is changing in law enforcement, right? This right. is not a podcast, but it is a piece of this puzzle, right? And it's right. Of the biggest public policy barrier to folks that want it for expansion. No one thinks the Texas and in, in Texas, the program is not asking uh, for advocacy for legalization, right? That's probably a federal decision that will impact Texas and that, that legislators and governors down the road will have to make for Texas a long time after I'm out of here. But in the meantime, it does matter. And cops will tell you they don't care about the 22-year-old college kid sitting on the right. you know, porch smoking a joint. They do care about cartels bringing it across the border and all the violence that goes with that. 
In the past, in policing, we've used that bottom-up theory, right? Let's get the little guy, flips on the next guy, flips on the next guy. But we don't have to do that anymore. We have better intelligence. We have better data. We have better ways of getting into those organizations at the border uh, through international cooperation, through larger investigation. The idea that we have to bust the little guy to get to the big guy is very like 1970s, 1980s policing. And cops just don't do that anymore. It's, it costs more time and effort. And, and we're also seeing cities just say, we're not enforcing those kind of laws anymore unless it's egregious and related to something like driving or something else. Right. And so the policy is changing. And the police officers remember that in, in our country, most cops work 20 to 25 years and get early retirements. Most police officers on the street today are under the age of 40, at least the ones in uniform. Most of them have grown up in a different culture around cannabis. And so it was not as taboo as it was. I would I wouldn't blow smoke in a cop's face and see what happens yet. But I do think it's not the strategy anymore. And that really is helping to destigmatize cannabis use and opening the door for medical uses more and more because it's not just a self-medication piece. We see a lot of people who have undiagnosed PTSD is the largest growing qualifying condition in Texas and most other states, right? Lots of trauma, lots of military veterans and others that that find a use for it. And the more they get to tell their story, the better. And, and Texas has done a great job of advocating um, for those qualifying conditions. And by the way, in my opinion, uh, they've advocated it. They've shown that they can use the program successfully and not cause a lot of public policy heartache. And so there's some responsibility there. If you're advocating, you have to be sure that pro you use the program effectively in order to keep it. Absolutely. You were mentioning, and I want clarification, New Mexico had medical for 10 years. That was about like the time. Over those 10 years, what transitions in terms of how you're seeing Texas mimic the New Mexico program? You, you, you mentioned conditions. I'm aware of the conditions. Obviously, that first year, it was very specific to incurable things and epilepsy. Then it expanded this second to last session. We got PTSD, like you highlighted, is the largest one. I actually am a medical patient as PTSD for my car accident. But to your point earlier as well, I haven't bought medicine in a long time. So I'm just a rogue number just sitting in there. But we know that this last session, we wanted the program to expand. We wanted chronic pain, obviously, is a very larger, wider bucket of a condition. So I'm curious, what was the progression for New Mexico in terms of maybe conditions that came to open the program up? And what do you see Texas learning or emulating for our program? Is chronic pain realistic? To me, chronic pain is a catch-all. But if I'm being honest, I think PTSD is a catch-all. Candidly, when I was getting my medical license in Texas, or my medical prescription, I should say, the doctor had a 15-minute conversation with me. I told my story, how I was in a car accident. I was expecting him to ask me for records of my accident, of my scans. He did none of that. He just goes, great, you qualify. You said you have PTSD. You got it, baby. And I got legal cannabis that day from them. So I'm not saying it to dog on the program, but I think people maybe don't realize that the program is pretty accessible already. But that coupled with how the medicine gets distributed, the rules around how you have to not have the medicine leave the facility's hands for 24 hours. I think those are some of the more contention points. But again, looking at New Mexico and the progression New Mexico made, what was that like and what do you anticipate or what are you going to try to advise Texas to do through y'all's consulting? I'll leave the advice to the to the meeting when we have it, right? But at this point, we're just looking at the data and trying to make sense of it, as you pointed out. 
But I think there is a parallel with other states, right? We had done this back for New Mexico, looking at how other states had progressed. Uh, when we legalized uh, transition and chose to transition, New Mexico and Illinois were the only two states that were adding an adult use to a medical program. Ours was one of the very first medical programs in the country. And so New Mexico had already pioneered a lot of those. And I want to be clear, this is not notes under the tent for legalization in Texas. This is, as you pointed out, New Mexico had one of the first medical programs. Ten years later, it was one of the largest by per capita in terms of how it had expanded. And so there, we think there are some models there that, that lessons learned that will help Texas make decisions if they choose to expand in the future. And that's an if that's outside of my scope. But the answer is every state, almost every state starts with epilepsy because it's hard to argue with the mom, with the kids, with those perpetual seizures, right? And more recently, the big expansions have been around PTSD. And no offense to you, and I'm grateful that you share your medical story because I think it's important for an advocacy perspective. But it, usually PTSD, when legislators are thinking about that, they're not thinking about car accident victims. Yes, they're 100%. Military veterans and other folks that have long traumatic right. outcomes. No, it, it has a collateral benefit for lots of folks who do. But as you point out, I think there are some doctors who take it very seriously and, and like everything else. And there are some doctors who are a little more pro-cannabis and, and are open to its use for other things. And so they may have a lower entry barrier. But at the end of the day, it's their license they're putting on the line. And so the, the treatment plan that you develop with your doctor is your treatment plan. It determines how many units you get, how much prescription you get, how many, all those pieces. And so it's a really important that doctors are involved. So to answer your question, New Mexico started with three or four conditions. We expanded over the course of several legislative sessions, exactly like Texas has done. But what we're looking at is when they added that, how many people came in the first year? Those are probably the ready to go. They're already pro-cannabis users. They're waiting in line at the doctor the day it's available because they've tried everything else and exhausted all those other options. We know how many folks that'll be. So New Mexico is about 2 million people. Texas is about 10 times that. And then so, and so we can extrapolate out what that number looks like. And actually we can use CDC data to tell us how many people in Texas have each of those conditions. And so we can say, if 5% of the people in New Mexico with that condition signed up, we can expect 5% here. We're only at 2%. So we should prepare for the other 3% at some point, and we can use those lessons. What we also learned was educating doctors was the key in New Mexico. New Mexico eventually allowed nurse practitioners and other medical professionals to, to prescribe for certain conditions that were not quite as complex like cancer and other things that require some higher level treatment. And so I think that's one of the things that we would evaluate, we will evaluate for Texas. Are there enough doctors prescribing to give people statewide access? Every county does not have a doctor that prescribes. And we have some doctors as in Texas who for professional reasons choose not to be publicly disclosed as an enrolled physician and they treat specialized patients, but the public may not know that. And so that doctor is really not accessible to you unless you get a referral and know somebody. And so that's going to be one of the questions that we need to answer talking to patients is if you have this condition, how accessible is a doctor to solve that problem for you or at least evaluate that option for you? The other question that we see in the data is that, as you mentioned, there are a good number of people who have prescriptions that are unfilled. Some of them have gone unfilled for years. Does that mean they're not in the program anymore or does that just mean they're not having an active issue right now with their condition, or does that mean they've modified their treatment program with their physician and cannabis is no longer a part of that because they found an alternative? And so the data really doesn't tell us that, but what we hope to be able to do is say, hey, look at this other state. 
by the time they get to 10 years, this is what you should expect. And oh, by the way, the early data seems to indicate that Texas is following that model, even though the THC percentages are, are vastly different, even though the geography expansion is vastly different, that patients who need help are willing to go a long way to find it if it's available. And so the data seems to be pointing to that all these medical programs have the same trajectory and Texas is on that path. That's what I was going to ask just in terms of what Texas is looking at, obviously, to New Mexico, to these other states, to your organization to help advise. Again, it's great that they're open to these conversations. I think a sentiment just in the general industry is Texas is closed off to this. Obviously, we have the legislative process, but I think you also have people in position like I really and this is maybe a hot take. I think Abbott would legalize it. I think he'd be more supportive of expanding the program. I think Dan Patrick, as our lieutenant governor, people don't really realize the lieutenant governor's power in Texas to assign where those bills are being heard, especially during legislative sessions. So I think there was a lot of blockage that was happening at that time during our last legislative session, which is why the program didn't advance at all. And so now you are punting the progress for another two years. And I don't know, what is your opinion on how Texas... So like, I guess let me clarify this too. Y'all are not maybe explicitly advising Texas on what to do. You're just helping them understand the data and saying, this is what we've learned from our state. And then Texas, you got to make a decision. Who are the decision makers in the Texas Compassionate Use Program? Is it really up to the lieutenant governor? Is it something that has to happen in the legislative session? Like, what are you observing in terms of Texas actually making progress with the program, considering, again, we didn't make any progress the last session? Well, I might argue and say that for folks that want to expand, I don't think you didn't make progress, right? I think the idea that the bill got through the first chamber, got to the Senate, it seemed to have general support in moving forward. Uh, Again, the politics are outside of our scope, exactly what you said. We're here to answer questions and provide technical expertise um, to evaluate how other states have moved through their medical program and advanced over time. What's absolutely clear that everybody can see from the public data, as you pointed out, the number of patients continue to increase. Uh, The pressure on DOs to expand partner pickups, which means expanding locations where you can access more, be more accessible, continues to increase whether or not the legislature does another expansion this past year or two years from now. Um, And so the law that in in Texas says you have to provide statewide access, really the decision is, is Texas living up to that requirement the legislature gave? As far as I understand, the decision on extra licenses, et cetera, is purely an administrative one and they need the data to advise that. And so if you think there are enough DOs and you don't wanna see expansion, I think you should call your legislator. They still work for you. You should call the lieutenant governor's office, the governor's office, and say, hey, this is what I think. If you think there need to be more, I think you should engage in that process. Uh, But our job is to provide some information, as you said, so that they can make those decisions. Um, Ultimately, it's going to be a question of, are we meeting, is Texas meeting a statutory requirement to provide statewide access? Now, what that means is a different question. Is it access for doctors? Is it access for DOs? Is it access for product diversity? All of those questions are become incredibly complex in this business because there's not a standard for this. As you know, from the hemp side, until the Farm Act was passed, there was no standard state to state. And even now it's still screwed up. And it's an interesting place, right? The world has it, or the, the country has its eyes on Texas as a market for expansion, but Texas is going to do this their own way. And we're not trying to model them on New Mexico. We want them to understand what will happen 
as more people get access to doctors, as the more people in with those conditions understand that they have a treatment option, if they've exhausted all other options. And I have to say, I, I think overall, the state of Texas is very supportive of this program. They could have canceled it at any legislative session and instead they've been expanding it. And so the, the trajectory is still the same. Long-term, everybody understands that at some point, the feds are going to reschedule cannabis, maybe the end of this year, maybe next year, maybe with the next president, but the pressure is there. And that's going to add new pressure to Texas as well in terms of how they choose to navigate that. But what that means in the meantime is probably the program that was designed in 2018 for 5,000 prescriptions probably needs some extra resources and some extra guidance when we're at 150,000 prescriptions a year, which is where we're at now. And so people understand how that works and, and how that might make sense. And maybe the answer is extra licenses in some of those places where their people are not getting access. Maybe it is that DOs uh, are required to have so many partners, pickup locations and other locations. I don't know the answer to that. And that'll be the decision of the folks at DPS and the political leaders. Um, but we don't want them to make uninformed decisions. And that means we'll help with the data on the inside. And folks on the outside have got to be able to tell their stories about why this matters to them. And that is acts that is absolutely happening. We're we're getting those calls. I know that the governor's office and DPS are getting those calls. It doesn't have to be limited to the legislative session. Uh, the law allows uh, some decision making in these interim times through the current process. And I think that's what they're trying to decide. No, I really appreciate that clarity because I feel like as involved as I am and as close as I am to this, especially being in the capital city here in Texas, I still feel confused at what's happening. And then especially tracking cannabis movement just in general with the podcast and just paying attention to outside of the hemp space. It is really interesting because I think when Texas was just on the cusp this last time of opening up new licenses, I was reading an article from some magazine and it had a quote from Compassion and Cultivation, the former CEO Morris, and he made some statement to the effect of, no, we don't want more licenses because the current program isn't even supporting current operators. And so I think, you know, there's a pro con pro to that sentiment on one end. I get it. You spent a lot of money in the state of Texas. And to your point, you were supporting 5,000. Now that's exponentially grown. You should have the support to let the program expand to give you a leg up to succeed because you've invested so much on the front end. But then on the other side of that, it's Texas is a large state. So surely there have to be other operators. And I think that's a little bit of what I'm trying to, again, it's all new. We don't know how it's going to go. I think it's fun to speculate. I think it's fun to look at other states, but you highlighted it really great. And I'm happy to hear that. You don't want Texas to have the same program as New Mexico. And that was always my kind of assumption was that Texas was going to look at everybody else and be like, we're Texas. Sorry, we want to do it our way. And that's, again, a good thing. But also, what does that mean? And so on the hemp side, I see so many operators who got into the hemp industry because they saw a possibility of growing hemp. Maybe that gives them an opportunity to say, hey, I'm a first mover to grow marijuana when it legalizes. And I laugh at those people. I know there's still people out there. I'm sorry, maybe I shouldn't laugh, but you need to pay attention to how things are unrolling. And so the fact that Texas has limited licensure, they're vertically integrated required. There's just so much constraints that it's not to say that Texas won't eventually open up a recreational market to look like something maybe akin to New Mexico or Colorado or something where you can be vertically integrated or you can just be a cultivator. You can just be a retailer. But right now, the way the program sits, it's just hard when I see peers and outsiders looking at Texas being like opportunity. And I'm like, yes, but it depends how the state and to your point again, right? 
Y'all aren't necessarily going in there and saying, this is the program, Texas. This is what you need to do. You need to have 20 licenses. They need to be broken up this way. And that's the concerning part is, what is Texas going to do? Is Texas going to issue three more licenses, maybe in the Panhandle, maybe South Texas to, to fulfill those people who are too far from the central areas where they're all right now in central Texas, from my yep. understanding? Or yep. is Texas going to do something completely different? So I see, unfortunately... Lots of inbreeding fighting happening or in, inbreed fighting happening just within the industry. And that's where I'm eager to see how Texas ultimately deals with it. But, and I think and it's really important. I think you hit on a very important piece, right? The existing DOs, and I want to say this deliberately because it is important, right? In a model from New Mexico. Back in the day, and it still exists here and in other places. Back in the day when you have to start a, a big C cannabis company, low THC or otherwise, it's expensive. It's out of your pocket. There are no banks that do this that way. You generally have to come to it because somebody in your organization probably built that building or owns it. And now you gave them equity in your business because they had to do that. A construction guy probably did that for you. Somebody has access or experience in growing. Somebody understands retail. And so when you're trying to grow and meet all that, you've got a bunch of people who have other jobs who came to do this. Because remember, if you're in Bixie Cannabis, the feds won't allow you to use those that income for things like mortgages, car loans, and all that. So you got to be pretty independently wealthy. And the price point of the margins are not what people think the, they are on cannabis. Because by the time the feds get their state, their chunk of your taxes, about 30% plus or minus, and everything else, there's not a lot of money and room in here. And those original organizations have a real claim to say, hey, we doubled, tripled, 10 times, 10 x our capacity within the constraints of this program. And we haven't realized our investment yet. Like we're belt bought into medical and they're right about that. And so for folks that come to us and say, in, in New Mexico in particular, we've helped to license more than 200 new facilities for medical and adult use since we transitioned our program, right? We've done a lot of startup work with folks that start. For people that say, oh, I'm going to grow hip and wait, we say, be really good at the hip business. Like focus on the business you have now. Be really good at that. Find your market, do your thing, and let the rest, as you said, let everybody else sort this out. You participate and do that, but your business plan should never count on somebody. I'm a politician. Nobody should ever count on a politician making a decision that you think you can divine because weird things happen. And we really do advise folks that are thinking they'll be upfront because they're in the, a HIP program or they're in some analogous program in the medical world. Nothing is as simple in cannabis. And so focus on what you do it really well and do it with that intent and see where this goes. But to your point, it's patients argue that it's hard to get cannabis when they are enrolled in the program. But there are ways that existing DOs can expand under the current rules. And the state has put its toe in the water to see if other folks can help fill that gap. But we haven't seen those applications yet. We deliberately aren't looking at those until we understand what framework the state wants to use to make those evaluations. And so I don't think it's going to be soon, but that'll be a decision up to DPS. And maybe they just decide that this current system works for now and they want the legislature to come back and give them better direction in two years. That is absolutely the, the status quo and probably the easiest route forward for everybody to say, we're just going to hold here. And so I think continue advocacy helps. But at some point, I wouldn't make a business plan based on an application that's pending because at the moment, there's not a process through which they will issue a new license. Yeah, I think New York most recently did award their hemp growers first opportunity to cultivate under the rec program. 
But again, that program is also not really going off like people were anticipating New York to go off either. So well, and, it's, and it's caused a lot of and it's court battles, not over it's over things about who got it first right, who got to yep. step in first because you're trying to grandfather in. That has been the most complicated piece in every state that's tried is trying to balance the existing people who are trying to transition with new folks who want to get in early. And then you have a social equity component that says, what if I don't have tons of cash? I still want an opportunity. No state's done that well, including New Mexico. I, I would argue we're one of the better with 45% minority ownership. And the majority of our licenses are to companies that are mom and pop owned. We call small business mom and pop under a million dollars in revenue. But that's on the adult use side. On the medical side, it is incredibly more complex and think, uh, a lot more money and work. I think that's something that I'm curious and cautious about. I'm sure my listeners are too, especially being a small business owner. Again, not that I anticipate getting into the rec market at any immediate point because I'm realistic and I know that this is a longer game, especially in Texas. But I do think that there is some expectation for small businesses to succeed, especially in Texas, where we're very independent. We don't want government intervention. And so it's interesting that you're highlighting, even in New Mexico, the medical program is still really for big dollar players. And then the rec is where you're seeing the smaller businesses. Is that something that's being brought up in the conversations with the state of Texas to make sure that because I think a big fear just in general, as you're going towards rescheduling, descheduling, federal legalization, if, and when that comes, it's that's going to benefit the MSO. I mentioned we were just in D.C. trying to talk about the farm bill. And right now the conversation is trying to get CBD classified as a dietary supplement. And there's a pro and a con to that, right? I think, yes, you want it to be regulated properly, but there's then certain regulations that are going to benefit certain players, certain operators, because they have the funds, they have the influence. And I just, I'm very realistic. I, I picture a day where, yes, you can get weed in every state. You can get it locally down the corner of your neighborhood, but it's not going to be the small business owners who are really operating. It's going to be more of a, a multi-state or professional, bigger operation. So I'm just curious if Texas is even talking about and if that's part of their conversation or, or if they're, it's, you need the infrastructure, you need the money because it is a big. And let me clarify something I said that, that just to be clear, in New Mexico, it was the big companies that built our medical program. We had all 33 licensees for the whole state. And th those folks did invest a lot of money. And so they did have a head start in just in terms of market share and other things in the market. And some of the big MSOs did come in and buy those existing large operators. But New Mexico was pretty well able to, to head off the the hedge fund sort of acquisitions, except for our top two or three large companies who had positioned themselves that way. Um, the majority of our companies are still mom and pop. And I think that's true for a couple of reasons, right? Um, one being people, just like coffee shops and other things, there's Starbucks, and then there's the local place on the corner that you know everybody, you know where it comes from. And so folks are developing their own markets in their own communities, right? Every town in New Mexico has one of the big brand dispensaries, I promise you. But we have more dispensaries in New Mexico than we have Starbucks and McDonald's combined, right? But the ones that are the most successful in our towns are, there's a big MSO and then there's a, somebody who's local, knows everybody, does the right thing, buys from the local cultivator, does all the, that work. And so there is a place for mom and pop folks and for small operators to get started and do that really well. I just don't think they can emulate the big, you just can't emulate Starbucks because you're not going to beat them on cost and all that right. other back. And I think that's really important. But the other piece that, as you mentioned, is figuring out sort of how we talk about all this. What does that mean for patients in terms of access? 
And diversity is an important piece, not just in terms of the people who own the businesses and access, but what New Mexico learned was the more products we made available for people to match their condition and their dosing and their own opportunity, the more patients participated. So I think that's a really important piece. And that drove manufacturing independence, for example. Somebody was really good at making gummies because those were low absorption, time sensitive, all those kind of things. Some people made suppositories for medical, right? That was a, a piece that was important for certain uh, populations, especially our cancer patients and others. And so I think it really does matter that you understand all of those dynamics, doctors, patients, geography, all of those pieces. And what I think what that means is if you're an existing DO and you've invested a lot of money, you've got a good market share and good customers, but there's an opportunity for other people to help support the industry and support those DOs by bringing new products. If, for instance, there's not vertical integration or if there's some integration of an outside manufacturer with a specialized products that can license that IP. Somebody local could do that uh, under the current program today, as I understand, and partner with somebody to, to do that and, and petition DPS to approve. So I think there are some opportunities in the system, uh, in the existing program, that will expand patient access to products, geography, et cetera, that could be done under the current law. And that's probably where I think most of the advocacy goes. No, I think those are great points to bring up too, because again, as a patient, maybe I can't say current, but just someone who's aware of the products, it's very limited. Obviously, we are capped at the THC percentage of smokables or just off the table completely. On that vein, though, has, to your knowledge, any other state done a prescription program or is Texas the only one that it's this model? And is that potentially something that the state is aware of? Advise, are y'all advising them to maybe, you know, look, relook at that, change it because you don't get reciprocity. Uh, I feel like I can say this because I've said it a couple of times, but as a medical patient in Texas, before New Mexico went adult use, I was there for Lucky Leaf and I had heard that New Mexico would accept Texas prescriptions. I think I was probably one of the very first people to do it in New Mexico because the dispenser I went to was like, sure, let's do it. And my husband was like, what the F did you just do? I'm like, it's fine. I'm a medical patient in New Mexico now, about to go buy my products when we were visiting. And again, just the prescription is very difficult to have that reciprocity and to really allow, I think, comfortability in terms of transporting. Right now, the way it works is I have to have a medicine on me, has to be in the packaging container. I then am relying on the law enforcement or whoever's pulling me over DPS to look into a system, cross-check my name with my license. Like it's just, it's a big hurdle. And so I'm curious if that's part of the conversations or not as important in the scheme of everything else that is trying to be ironed out. We're certainly aware of that. And I'm anxious to hear what the advisory group has to say about some of those questions. But you're right. Uh, New Mexico has reciprocity with Texas. So if you have a Texas prescription, you can show proof of that in New Mexico and be an enrolled medical patient, which allows you to have higher dosing in New Mexico and be exempt from taxes, certain taxes, most of the taxes. But Texas's program is unique. And as we both said, like Texas made their own thing, right? Uh, they made the current database on the back end was home built in Texas for their particular needs. And it's actually pretty robust. I've heard a lot of folks that don't like it very much, but I, I love that it captures the data Texas wants to know. And it really does keep track of those prescriptions. How many more units do you have available? Um, what all that means? It, it really is a, a really robust system for data capturing. New Mexico had an early prescription program and abandoned it at some point because it was just too hard to keep up with. 
especially for patients with multiple conditions, because they could get a prescription for I'm going to use an example. You have uh, an epilepsy condition that you're treating, but you may need a different strain or something else for the chronic pain or PTSD, especially if you're coming back from service in the military, you may have multiple things like that. And it just became complicated as the program got more complicated. Will Texas change that? I have no idea. That's one of their decisions. Uh, but at the moment, I think Texas has one of the most accountable medical programs in the country, meaning we can tell you uh, who prescribed that prescription, what their pain program was, what who bought it, what day it was bought, and what DO provided it. And then on the DO side, we know where that plant came from, where that product was developed. It's one of the most accountable in the country. And I think Texas should get a lot of credit for that because it's probably what some of these other states should have done early on to head off some of the federal interference in their program or some of the outside interference and playing catch up in terms of documenting and keeping the black market out, which is really a real concern. Is this program something that is similar to metric or like a replacement of metric at a state level or? It is. Yeah. There's some national firms, metric, biotrack that do seed to sale tracking. Kurt basically tracks the doctors, the prescriptions and the sales. And so, you know, individual DOs have to enter all that information for the sale and, as you mentioned, verify that they're actually a prescription available, that they haven't been filled somewhere else. But from a patient perspective, it is more complicated than other states because you have to find the right doctor, right? You have to come up with a pain plan or a management, a a prescription plan or to dose appropriately, take that to the dispensary, and then you have to be verified each time you go. In other states, if you're enrolled, you walk in, you make your own plan, but there are downsides to that, right? That people can abuse that process. And so Texas has developed the plan they like, not our place to make that decision, but we're going to help them with the data to understand what other states have done and how that's progressed. And they can decide where that continuum they want to be. Very fascinating. I've learned so much from this conversation. I really do appreciate you taking the time, answering my questions and, and sharing the insight that you can. Final thoughts. What is the next step for you guys for Weeds in terms of working with the state of Texas? Is there a set timeline for which Texas is trying to make a decision by, obviously knowing that it can make some updates outside of the legislative session? Just what's next for Weeds in terms of what Texas is looking to your team to help accomplish? At this point, it's an open-ended question. We're working through the data that, that Texas has available. We're going to make those our initial analysis available over the next month or so. Uh, on different topics that they've given us. And so I'll leave that to DPS to determine through the working group how they want to work through that, take other comment, et cetera, et cetera. But really there is no timeline, right? And I think we, even for folks who have applied uh, for those additional licenses, if and when those may come, some of the initial timelines, they said, oh, we'll make a decision by the end of the year. I I don't know that's going to happen given where we are, but that's ultimately up to DPS. Um, As I said, the option may be just to leave everything alone And those folks will maybe on a waiting list, Uh, but that's their decision. So at the moment, there's no timeline. We're working through the data as quickly as it allows us to do. But keep in mind that we've got five years of data, all over a million almost prescriptions to look through and lots of other information. And it depends. So if you're interested in this topic, I, I encourage folks to continue to engage with the decision makers, even if they're not in session, because they have influence and they can ask questions. We've heard from folks at DOs, for example, who wanted to know how we're going to do this process. And we're being very public and very transparent. Uh, If you contact us, we share that information with DPS. We're we're not trying to participate and advocate on one side or the other. And so we share all those emails and conversations. We're working through the advisory group that DPS set up with DOs and patients. They have some very important insight 
that just gets beyond data, like the anecdotal, it's just hard to get there uh, and get my prescription is it is real, but we need to ask more questions about why that is. Is it geography? Is it my doctor's not accessible? All those questions. And so we want to have a better sense of what this program looks like five years in. But my initial sense, Texas has one of the biggest and most accountable programs in the country for medical, despite where people may want to make some tweaks. It works and it works really well, and it will continue to grow. Uh, the data shows that both for conditions, patient inclusion and doctor inclusion. And so the, what should this look like this year, next year, two years to the legislature? That's probably the most immediate question. The next question is, do we need more dispensaries, DOs or doctors? And that's a policymaker decision that they're going to have to decide based on the input they receive. And so if you care, you should share it. Very insightful things. Thank you again for the time. Thanks for being so open, as you've mentioned as well. I think these conversations are really important to have, not just for me here in Texas, but really, truly, I think all the listeners should be paying attention no matter what stage your state is in with the cannabis program, whether it's medical or adult use. And we're looking forward to seeing the work that you guys are doing with weeds and the state of Texas come to fruition and see some of that good work be implemented in our program. So thanks again for the time today, Pat. And thanks for tuning in to another episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. Bye, y'all. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the To Be Blunt podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed the enlightening discussions and insights we've shared today. But the conversation doesn't end here. I invite you to join my vibrant community of cannabis enthusiasts, experts, and advocates. So what can you do to stay connected and get involved? First, make sure you subscribe to To Be Blunt on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed our show, I would truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it. Your feedback helps the podcast grow and reach more listeners like you. Next, head over to our website, www.tobebluntpod.com, where you'll find a wealth of resources, exclusive content, and our show archives. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest cannabis news and events. Lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, and episode suggestions. Connect with me and the show on social media. Find us on Instagram at tobebluntpod and at theshadedtorabi. Let's keep the conversation going and work together to dispel myths, break stigmas, and celebrate the incredible world of cannabis. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, stay curious, stay informed, and stay blunt. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash tobeblunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.